something I actually wanted to mention before we, we get rolling with the, the message this morning is um, that we're celebrating Veterans Day today and it's also a very special day across many countries in the world. Um, it's known as Remembrance Day or Armistice Day and actually uh, George uh, emailed me last night about this and which is sharing some very interesting information about this. For example, in, in the UK where I'm from, they, they will re wear red poppies um, to remember the day that World War I was, uh, ended when an armistice was signed. And it's to remember the veterans who served. And that World War I seems so far off now. But it is a reminder of, of, of really of any war and, and the loss that, that war uh, costs. And so it's, it's a very special day to remember uh, troops and people who, who bravely served for us. So again, I thank you all uh, for, for your service. So we are well into our sermon series on the book of Philippians this morning. Um, <clears throat> we have about two or three weeks left before we come to the end of this sermon series on Philippians. So uh, we're really getting into the meat of the letter. Um, and uh, as I've said before, this will take us right up to Advent. Advent is creeping up on us. Um, and so, have you ever heard that term, it's a work in progress? Right? Yeah, I'm working on this or that, but it's a work in progress. And really, that term, a work in progress, what it means is it's something that hasn't been completed or perfected yet. Um, I often think of it in terms of music. Being a musician, often... Uh, You'll be working on a piece of music. Say you're looking at a, a Beethoven sonata. And obviously you start by not being able to play it. And you practice it and you get better and better at it. But until you get to that point where you can play it competently and with a certain degree of perfection, it's a work in progress. And, and that's one of the main themes here uh, that we're going to be discussing this morning in this passage from Philippians. The, the idea that we are all each and every one of us, a work in progress. None of us is perfect, as far as I know. I would love to talk to you afterwards if, if you have attained perfection. But none of us are perfect, are we? We all have our flaws and our faults. We are works in progress. And so when we begin this passage, um, to understand it, we need to actually kind of look back to what we were talking about last week. Um, because Paul begins by saying, you know, not that I'm there yet, but if we, we look back to verses 10 and 12 from last week, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and then somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So to know Christ through the power of his resurrection and the partaking in his sufferings and thus going through a dying, if you like, to get to resurrection is the goal or the prize that Paul's talking about here. And so what Paul's saying when he starts here is he's saying, I haven't got it all together yet. I haven't arrived. You know that expression, they've arrived. Well, Paul's saying, I haven't arrived yet. And remember, which is interesting, because remember last week, he was saying, hey, remember me? I'm the guy who's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, following the law to, to flawlessness. But here he is saying, but you know what, I haven't, I haven't made it. I haven't arrived yet. Instead, what does he do? Well, he says, verse 13, he says this. He says, to forget what lies behind, 
and reach towards what is ahead. That's a powerful piece of scripture right there. He's telling us to forget what lies behind and look to what lies ahead. And I believe this is the, this is the first gem of this passage here. The first nugget that we can really take home with us. I mean, what, what does it mean to forget what lies behind and to look towards what's ahead? I believe there's, there's two angles here. There's the angle of the, the context that Paul's writing in. Remember, he's writing to a specific church in Philippi. But then there's a broader way to understand this as well. So, first of all, the immediate context. What he's actually talking about is the spiritual progress he has made so far. Remember what he said in verse 7 that we looked at a few weeks ago? He said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And so really what he's saying here is, he's got so far in his spiritual walk, and he's doing pretty good, but he's saying, don't rest, rest on your blessed assurances. He's like, you've got to keep attaining and trying to get further up down the road with your faith. In other words, he's saying, don't coast in your faith. And that's something many of us do. Right? We get to a certain point in our faith where it just kind of it plateaus. And it just goes like this. And it's kind of like, well, I made, you know, I, I said the prayer. I made my commitment to Jesus. But now life just goes on. I, you know, I go to church sometimes. But it hasn't really changed my life. And we just plateau. And we, wonder, we start to question, is this real? It doesn't seem to be changing my life. It's how our faith, our faith can stagnate when we don't keep trying to attain further down the road in our faith. But Paul says instead what we should do is press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus. As I said, there are many of us who kind of have a stagnant faith life. It's almost like we've, we've made the commitment to Christ and that, that's kind of, okay, that's taking care of that part of our life. Now I can just get on with the rest of my life and just, just kind of compartmentalize this part of my faith right here. But anyway, back to things in this world. And I think of a, an interesting example here of um, years ago there was, there was a man I trained with in karate and his whole goal, he wanted to get his black belt. You know, the coveted black belt. And he trained and he worked hard and he was attending class regularly. And then once he got his black belt, he quit. He stopped. He left, left the club and uh, we never saw him again. And it was a very sad example of not understanding what the journey's about. Because one of my teachers once told me, when I got my black belt, he said, he said now you're an expert beginner. That's all you are. You, just because you have a black belt doesn't mean all of a sudden you're invincible and can levitate. It just means you're an expert beginner. You've got the basics down. Now the journey begins. And of course, in, in most martial arts, there are 10 degrees of black belt. So when you get your first, your first black belt, that's your first degree, or they're called dan. Dan is the Japanese word for senior. So first rank is shodan, then nidan, and sandan, and it goes on until you get to judan, which is the 10th dan, very, very rarely attained, and it's 
it's, it's only a, an award you can get after a certain age. You have to be, I think, in your 60s or your 70s anyway. So if you ever meet a 10th down who's 25, but he'd missed the whole point. He'd missed the whole point, which was attaining the black belt was not what it was really about. And it's the same for us within our faith. Making that commitment to Christ is very important. But then the journey begins. Then the journey begins. So that's the contextual idea of leaving what's behind and looking towards the, the future. Paul's saying don't look backwards in how far you've come. Look forward to how far you have to go. But there's a deeper, more universal interpretation here that I think we can really take home for ourselves. And it's the sense of not letting your past define you. Not letting your past define you. You know, there are many of us, for whatever reasons, that let our past define us, don't we? We live in this place of shame or self-condemnation or a sense of unworthiness because of something or some things we have done in the past. And we let those past events define who we are. And if it's not something we've done, perhaps it's something we've lost. So we may have lost a loved one and we can't seem to get out of that place of always being in this place of loss with this loved one. For me, one of the toughest losses in my life was my mother, who I lost about uh, 13 years ago. And there are regrets I have about that in terms of um, not being there more for her as she was dealing with her illness because I was living here in the US. Of missing her passing by three minutes because we took a, a wrong turn from the airport and we arrived at the hospital to be told you just missed her. I could stay, I could stay there and I could let that eat me up and there are times when it does but I can't stay there, I can't stay in the past because it will cripple me and the same goes for each and every one of you. I'm sure, I know you all have regrets in life, you all have places, things you've done, people you've lost and they keep you in this place. And it's, therein lies the path to despair when we stay trapped in the past. When we let our past define us, we create and live in a replaying or a repeating loop of hopelessness. The future looks just like the present and the present looks just like the past. And that's what can lead to these feelings of despair and hopelessness because there seems no way out, right? It doesn't seem like the clouds are going to part. Well, I want to tell you something, folks. Being trapped in your past, that right, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm just going to declare it for what it is. It is a lie. Because you see, if Satan can't take your life because you've given it to Jesus, the next best thing he can do is, is cripple or paralyze your life. can't steal your soul, but he can make you impotent for Jesus if you keep reliving your past. But the good news is, if you have Jesus in your life, you're not defined by your past. 
That's not what defines you. In fact, in an ironic way, letting your past define you, in a funny way, it's a really it's a form of idolatry. Because what you're doing is you're putting the things that you've done in the past or the things you've suffered in the past, and you're saying they are bigger than God. God can't heal that. My problems are too big. And so you're putting, you're putting them above God. And that, of course, is idolatry. But you're now, de- you're de- now defined by Christ and what he did on the cross. Your past, whatever you've done, has been forgiven. It has been wiped away and paid for. Listen to what Hebrews 8.12 says. It tells us that the Lord will forgive us our sins and remember them no more. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, yes, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And Micah 7.19 says, says, he will toss our sins into the depths of the ocean. Do you realize there comes a point when you give it all to him, your past doesn't matter. Your past stays in the past. There are so many things I've done in the past that I regret, that I'm ashamed of, that I'm embarrassed of. But you know what? It does not define me anymore. Because I gave it to the Lord, and I know He's forgiven me, and I know He remembers my sins no more. It's like God deliberately gives Himself amnesia. He says, we're not going there. It's done. That's not who you are now. God says you are a new creation. You are a, a work in progress, but remember whose work you are. You're God's work. Each and every one of you is God's work. And there is a time coming when he will make all things new. And that's why we don't have to live in despair. Because there is coming a time when he will make all things new. Paul tells us in verse 16 that a sign of being mature is to view things this way, that we're all a work in progress, that we haven't arrived, and actually we won't arrive in this lifetime. Okay? We're a work in progress right throughout this life. Remember that that clip that I played last week? Brennan Manning, he was saying, um, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. And that's true, because God knows we're all a work in progress. He knows all your dirty laundry. He knows all the things you do in secret. And he still loves you. Our progress is a lifelong journey. And you're not going to arrive. Again, I go back to music. And when I tell some of my, my younger students that there will never come a point in their piano playing where, okay, now you've got everything together. You've got it all. There's nothing more to do. I said, no, you will be practicing and playing and getting better until the day you die. Because there's so much music and there's always ways we can improve. Well, it's the same with our faith. Our faith is an active faith. It's not a stagnant faith. Paul goes on and he returns to this larger theme of unity. Remember, we've been talking a lot about unity in the the book of Philippians. This theme of unity, the unity of the church, permeates the letter. 
And Paul says, he says a remarkable thing here. He says, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Now, I wouldn't say in this church anybody thinks differently from each other, right? That's actually a sign of a healthy church. We're not all robots. Yes, we think exactly alike. Yes, we are part of the same cult. Yes. No. We're a diverse group of people, aren't we? With different opinions about things. And Paul says, if on some point you think differently, that God will make clear to you. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that as a community of faith, as a church, we will encounter and rub shoulders with and work and fellowship with people who don't always think the same as us, who don't always agree with us. They don't agree with our politics. They might not agree with your theology or your social ethics. We have all kinds of opinions about those things in this room. And that doesn't mean that we cannot fellowship and love one another and be a church together. I mean, let's just, let's just shout out some of the biggest dividers in, in today. Right? Obviously, politics. You know, Democrat versus Republican. Pro-life versus pro-choice. Gay marriage versus traditional marriage. Immigration. We could go on. There's so many issues. And these are some of the, the biggest issues that not only tear society apart, but they tear churches apart. Some of those issues, they, they create such division and schisms in the church because we have not learned how to love each other. And while I believe that we are called to allow Scripture to mold our lives rather than our lives to mold Scripture, which unfortunately is the way some churches have gone, is they want the culture to define the Scripture in the, instead of the other way around. And I think it's important for us to remember that we... We are called to be culture makers, not culture assimilators. That's what makes us salt and light in society, folks. That we are culture makers. But instead, what often happens is churches are very quick to, to point and accuse the splinter in their brother or sister's eyes instead of learning to love and forgive one another. You know, one of the things I love about the denomination that our, our church is affiliated with is that I think they have a really good balance here. They essentially adopt the famous position that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. On the Four Seas website, it says this, Though we are solidly committed to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, we allow for diversity in many areas where Christians have tended to disagree. Though our members hold strong biblical convictions, we do not believe that Christians should divide over secondary issues. There are places, I believe, where the church needs to stand firm, but so often there are places where we bicker about silly little things. Oh, well, you're a Calvinist. I'm an Arminianist. I'm a Molinist. I don't know what I am. I'm just going to put an ist on the end of it. We can't have fellowship. You believe in predestination. I don't. Silly, silly things. I mean, that, you know, theology is important. Hey, yeah, I'm a theologian after all. But those kind of things should not be what divide us. 
And what Paul's saying here is that, is that if we are diligent to pray and seek God's voice, he will make clear to us the truth of these matters. He will speak to your heart. And he'll convict you of certain things in the sense of a prompting of the Holy Spirit will say, hey, this is, this is not right. Or this is right. What does my word say about it? What does scripture teach about it? Moving on to verse 17, Paul essentially says, what he's really saying in verse 17 is, follow my lead. And follow the lead of others, people in the church who are the real deal. You ever met somebody in church and you hang out with them a little bit and you just get this sense, wow, they are... They're deep. They're, they're really doing this. They're really walking out this faith thing. Not that they have their own issues, they don't have their own issues. But there's something about them, you know that they're, they're kind of the real deal. And they'll share their struggles with you. I think that's part of being the real deal. You let people know your weaknesses. You tell them, hey, you know what, I am really struggling in this area right now. Or, man, you should have heard what I said yesterday. Or That's part of being mature. It's not mature to hide all the, the bad little things you do. But he's saying, emulate these people. Paul said, emulate me and the, the things I've taught you. When I first read this, I thought, oh, gee, Paul, that's kind of arrogant. You know, look at me. Do what I do. Yes. I don't think he was American, by the way. But, um, and I thought, that's kind of arrogant, is it? And, but, but then I thought about it for a second. I thought, no, actually, that's what all teachers do isn't it? When a good teacher will say to their student, copy me. Do it as I do it. Again, teaching piano, I'll say, no, 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 watch my hands. This is how you do it. You see the fingers there? Yeah, keep your wrist straight. All that sort of thing. So a good teacher will say to his students, copy me, emulate what I'm doing. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you, you have mature people in the church. Use them as an example for how you can grow spiritually. But then in verse 18 and 19, he gives a cautionary warning. And he says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction and their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. The mind is set on earthly things. There's some pretty strong words there from Paul. He's, he's never one to really bite his tongue, is he, Paul? But what, what, what does that mean? To be an enemy of the cross of Christ. And at first I thought, well, it's kind of obvious, it's, right? it's people who are persecuting Christians across the world and, and those who want to kind of shut down any mention of Jesus in public and all that kind of stuff. And yes, I think that is one form of uh, enemies of the cross. That's an obvious example. But I think it goes deeper than that. And it's, you've got to look at the cross. We sang about the cross today, didn't we? Thank you for the cross. And, you know, to somebody who's perhaps not... Uh, was not raised Christian or is not familiar with that, that might seem really weird. Right? you got this piece of wood that's a torture device that kills people in an absolutely horrible, horrendous way. And we're singing thank you for that? Seems very strange, doesn't it, at first? But that's what is called the paradox of the cross. See, because to, to Christians that the cross is the way to redemption and to resurrection, to the hope of something better. 
And the paradox of the cross is that it turns human schemes and ideas on their head. The cross stands in contradiction and contrast to human wisdom and power. I mean, the way I look at it, the cross is so ludicrous, it has to be true. Because think about it. If you were trying to start a new religion, right? Yeah, you know what? I want to get a group of followers together. I want to kind of model myself as a Messiah-type figure. Get some followers. Maybe make a little money. <laughs> Would you design a religion where the, the leader, the, the, the God figure, is a tradesman who gets a bunch of uneducated guys together to follow him, and then ends up getting himself killed by the most shameful way that the Romans had in society. Do you think that would naturally be appealing to anybody? Hey guys, come, come join my group. I'm planning to kill myself, get myself killed, should I say, and uh, it's going to be awesome. No thanks, I'll pass on that. You see how I say that the message of the cross is so ludicrous that it has to be true. You wouldn't make this up if it were not true because it's too ludicrous. And it wouldn't still be around over 2,000 years later if it was not true. So the enemy of the cross is, is really more to see the cross as a threat to our cozy lives. The cross reminds us that there is more than just this life. And that our minds shouldn't be just set on the things of this world. Because you know what, folks? This world and our lives in it, they're pretty fleeting. Why don't you talk to some of the, the older folks in our congregation about how fast life goes by? Am I right? Yeah? yeah? <laughs> right? It flies by, doesn't it? And it's, you know, when you're younger, life goes slower. And as you get older and older, it gets faster and faster. And this life is so fleeting. It's over in a heartbeat. And if this is all we have, then that is a pretty depressing prospect. Because one more thing happens as life goes on. You get older and you get stiff, right? And when you bend over, you decide how many things can I pick up while I'm down here, <laughs> right? Because you don't want to have to go down again. Like, I got to pick, ah, what else have we got down here? Oh, piece of Lego right there. Hey, drops a cookie, <laughs> you know? Our bodies, unfortunately, they decay, they get older, they hurt, they get damaged. That's <laughs> You're in good shape if you can actually get down there in the first place, right? Getting up's another matter, right? But here, okay, here's the good news, all right? I know you've been waiting for the good news all morning. Um, this is where this is all leading. Verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Do you know there are so many people who covet American citizenship? Right? I mean, just look at all the, the immigration stories we see. And there's, there's so many people desperate for American citizenship, U.S. citizenship, because they believe this, this country offers them a better life. And it certainly is one of the most coveted passports in the world, the U.S. passport. I have, have recently been uh, 
really seriously uh, considering applying for American citizenship. Right now I'm a, a green card holder. And I've certainly been here long enough that I could apply for citizenship and it wouldn't probably, fingers crossed, be very difficult having an American wife and American-born children and all those kind of things. And it's because I see the advantages of being an American citizen. I'm a British citizen right now and that's not something I will lose if I become an American citizen. But citizenship is such an advantage. It gives you rights. It allows you to vote. All kinds of things. So think about this. If you're a citizen of heaven, that's the best passport you can possibly get. And not only that, it's, Paul's actually kind of referring back here to, you remember when we were first talking about the city of Philippi and how it was essentially a Roman colony. It was populated by uh, expats and veterans from the Roman army. And so, you know, the word colonization and colonialism doesn't have a very positive um, um, uh, effect these days, right? Because we think of all the tyranny and oppression that went on over the years by the various empires that colonized countries all over the world. Um, you know, my country being a prime example of that. It was a, um, a comedian, Eddie Izzard, who, who made a really funny joke about this. About He said, the British Empire colonized a quarter of the world by the cutting use of flags. He said, we arrived in India and said, I hereby claim India for Her Majesty. He said, you can't do that, there's 500 million of us. Well, do you have a flag? That, no flag, no country. <laughs> and it, was, it was kind of an amusing way of talking about uh, colonialism. Of course, colonialism wasn't an amusing thing for those who were being colonized. But, the point I'm trying to get to here is that we're essentially called to be colonizers from heaven. So we're supposed to bring the culture of heaven to earth. That's what we're called to do as citizens of heaven. That's what citizens do. They bring their culture and, and, and their lifestyle and all those kind of things, their benefits, supposedly, to a country. So as citizens of heaven, that's what we're called to do. Right here on earth. Is bring a little, little taste of heaven to earth by the way we act, by the way we live, by the way we treat others, by the way we love one another. We're to be colonizers for heaven. But then it gets even better. Verse 20 and 21. Paul says, And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like glorious bodies. So despite the chaos and unsettledness that you might be feeling right now, Anybody feeling a little bit that, that way? When you kind of look around at the world? I, you know, I'm getting to the point where I don't even want to turn the news on. Because it's going to be a case of what happened today. But there is a sense, isn't there, of, of, of you know, things coming to a head. Something's coming to a head here. But we need to be encouraged because we're reminded that we have a God who is able to bring everything under his control. Everything. And with that, there's a, there's a time coming when these bodies we have right now, you remember we were just talking about bodies, how they get older and they decay? Well, they're, they're going to be transformed into glorious, imperishable 
bodies, bodies that don't get old, that don't age. I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if I, by show of hands, ask you who is happy with their body to raise their hand, I think I'd be very surprised if I saw one hand go up. Maybe. <laughs> Jeanette, yes. You're my new hero. <laughs> But you know, most of us, we're not happy with our bodies, are we? Right? For whatever reason, we see all the little imperfections with the things that most other people probably don't see, but we see them. Like, oh, I, I, I don't like my nose, or, you know, I hate my left eyebrow, or, you know, whatever it is, right? We're very critical of ourselves. I know people who are in ridiculously good shape, who have what you would call a perfect body, and they are still hung up about their body. Well, Paul's telling you here, there's going to come a day when you are going to have one amazing body. Each and every one of you. And it's never going to get old. It's never going to decay. You're not going to get wrinkles. It's imperishable. That's exciting. I know you might think, that sounds ridiculous. How's that ever going to happen? Well, it happened to Jesus when he rose from the dead. And if we're in Jesus... We have that to look forward to. He was the paradigm. That's what we're progressing to. That's what we have to look forward to. We are all a work in progress. But remember that the term a work in progress implies that the work is not stagnant. It's not stationary. It's moving in a forward direction towards a goal or a prize. That's what progress is. It's forward-moving direction. So as we finish up here, remember we are all works in progress. Give yourself some slack. But the future is bright and it's exciting. And when we understand that, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. So I want to leave you with four points that you can take away from today. Number one. Do not be satisfied in where you are right now spiritually. Don't rest on your laurels thinking, okay, I made it, you know, I'm good. No, continually strive to go deeper with your faith and your relationship with God. We have a bottomless God. He is infinite. You'll never get to the complete depths of God, and that is the wonderful thing. God never get, he, you'll never get tired of God if you keep building relationship with him. It's a lifelong journey of growth and development. And it only gets boring if you allow it to. So how do you go deeper? Well, remember, prayer, study, coming to church, being with other believers, iron sharpens iron. It's so important to your faith. You're not going to grow by sitting in your bedroom watching YouTube clips and sermons. You grow by being around one another, by being challenged by one another. Number two, stop living in your past. Stop letting your past define you. Surrender it to the Lord and move on knowing you are forgiven. It's forgotten. And your future in Jesus is what truly defines you. Number three, be a colonizer for heaven. 
be a terraformer for heaven. Don't be a culture emulator, be a culture creator. And number four, remind yourself often that there is a hope greater than anything this world can offer. And because of that, there is always a reason to be joyful. Let's pray. Father, we, <clears throat> we thank you that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. That you have created us, Lord, to, to bring pockets of heaven to earth. That we are to emulate your culture, your society, Lord. I pray you would give us strength to get to know you more deeply. To leave the past in the past. To look to what lies ahead. And I pray you would fill us with joy knowing that um, this, this world and everything it offers is not the end game. That while it's good to strive and work hard in our life, ultimately we have a joy that is far, far greater than just what this world can offer. I pray you would put that on people's hearts this morning and you would give them joy this week as they go forth. We thank you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.